Good morning. Feels good to take the mask off for a few minutes. Thank you so much for your prayers for uh, my father. Um, I think the, the prayer went out that um, he did uh, pass into glory on Tuesday. Um, the Lord answered your prayers. He was able to come home from the hospital to their home in Maryland and um, spend those last few days uh, with all of us with him. And uh, he was at peace. And um, the Lord took him safely home to himself. So thank you for your prayers. Um, the next morning, one of the first phone calls we made was to my, one of my mom and dad's oldest friends, who I call Uncle Walt and Aunt Betsy. Walter Cantrell was my dad's best friend at the Naval Academy um, and uh, became an, an admiral, um, ran the uh, uh, missile defense shield system called Star Wars under Reagan, and I get to call him uncle. So uh, we called my Uncle Walt and Aunt Betsy because they were my godparents, and they still are my godparents, and let them know. And um, in that conversation, I was reminded of, uh, we were, my mom was telling stories, even more stories, more details about how she and my dad met over here in New London when she was at Connecticut College, he was at the submarine school. But I was reminded because I was telling my Uncle Walton and Betsy about the greatest story of all time, how they met. Um, so this is how my Uncle Walt and Aunt Betsy met. My Uncle Walt, his submarine was in New York City for Fleet Week back in the late 50s, early 60s. And my Aunt Betsy was a, a Duke student who was there for a summer internship. And one of her fellow Duke students was a Navy ROTC fellow. So he was taking her around to see the different ships and she said, I wanted to see a submarine, but it was past the time that the gates had closed and no one was allowed to come on board the submarine. So the, the, the Navy ROTC fellow, because he was wearing his uniform, he was able to go onto the submarine and ask special permission for his friend to get a tour of the ship. And my uncle Walt was the officer of the deck. You've heard the term scoping someone out. This is no metaphor. He literally raised the periscope <laughs> to scope her out on the pier to see what she looked like. And she passed the test. This beautiful woman, this beautiful North Carolina woman brought on board and into his life and the rest is history. <laughs> That's a simple story about the most profound um, relationship being offered to all of us, of course, that Christ comes to us. And we have the opportunity to just simply say, nope, not interested. Or we can carefully consider the wonders and beauty of Christ. We can scope him out, as it were. And once you see Christ for who he is, and I say this to all of us here, members of our church, to all uh, watching online, I know a number of family friends probably are watching now, whether you're in the church or outside of the church, Christ comes to you, comes to us this day. And once you see this Christ and all his beauty, you do welcome him into the heart if you're seeing who he really is. So let's pray. 
right now for this text to illuminate who Christ is to our eyes this day. Lord, we thank you for this text and for this opportunity to look at your word together where you come to us, the person of Jesus, in this remarkable and magical word from the book of Ecclesiastes. Illuminate this text to our understandings. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. When, as you know, in our, in our church, because of the beauty of Scripture, we give a, a, a full diet of Scripture, as it were, and Preston is preaching through a gospel, the book of Matthew. Craig, when he preaches, preaches through a New Testament book, the book of Hebrews. And I, when I preach, am preaching through the book of Ecclesiastes, an Old Testament book. And so this sermon was scheduled for months now, and when I saw what text it was, and then as things became plainer that my dad was going to be passing away soon, and I was reading this text, it just seemed like a lump of coal to me. This Ecclesiastes 6 text, it talks about all the sorrow and suffering in this world, in this world under the sun, and it seemed like just such a lump of coal. But then, of course, the more I read it, the more the Holy Spirit came and spoke to me through it. I just thought, oh, this is remarkable. So this text, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, you might remember it's written by uh, someone that calls himself koalath, a Hebrew word that perhaps is best translated the, the preacher. It's a Hebrew verb turned into a noun, the verb for the one that congregates. So this koalath, he has written this book, and it's plain by the way he identifies himself, that he's identifying himself as one person and one person only in human history. The only son of David who ruled over Israel before Israel was divided. So this is Solomon. And it's either Solomon himself writing this or all of Solomon's gathered wisdom put down later by someone respecting all that Solomon had. So Koaleth, written nearly 3,000 years ago, is an exploration into what this life is really like. And by this life, we're using that term very carefully. We're using that term very precisely, very biblically, namely this life. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 is describing this life. It's not really describing life. Is there another reality? Is there another life after this life? The little uh, giveaway that, that Koalath uses throughout the book to, to make it plain to us what he's talking about is the phrase, under the sun. When he reflects on what he sees, he uses the phrase, under the sun. And that is by definition, he's not reflecting on all reality. Namely, he's not reflecting about that reality above the sun. Is there a great God of love who will come into this world? That's the question he's posing for us. But when he uses the phrase under the sun, he's saying just look around. In this limited, finite, contingent, dependent, created sphere, what do we see under the sun? And our chapter this morning, chapter 6, is bookended with that phrase. Verse 1, verse 12, the beginning, the end of the chapter, 
under the sun, under the sun. This is a chapter that's like a lump of coal if the under the sun reality is all that exists. But of course, that's not why Koaleth is writing this book. Merely to reflect about this present reality. No, he is doing something far more profound. You see, he has a periscope as well. And he's in his time and place, is in this submarine, as it were. And the Lord has given him a periscope to raise up and look. And he's looking at something far more profound than merely a beautiful woman on a pier. What is Koalath looking at? What was he given by God, this magical periscope, to look at? He was given the same magical periscope that every one of the writers of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, was given. Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter, that this periscope was given to Koaleth because he was now using this periscope to search and inquire carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ within him was indicating when the Spirit predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's a direct quote from 1 Peter 1. This periscope is for him to inquire, when will God come to earth? When will God send his son? When will God send the Messiah? This Messiah who is going to suffer for us and then experience subsequent glories. This magical periscope helps Koalath to search and inquire. And these words he's written for us today help us to search and inquire. In fact, that's what all of the scriptures do for us. Think of how the French philosopher from four centuries ago, Blaise Pascal, the mathematician, the famous mathematician, what he wrote about the scriptures. He said, If a single man had written a book foretelling the time and manner of Jesus' coming, and Jesus had come in conformity with these prophecies, this would carry infinite weight. But in the scriptures, there is much more here. There is a succession of writers over a period of 4,000 years coming consistently and invariably one after the other with magical periscopes. Okay, he didn't use that phrase consistently and invariably one after the other to foretell the very same coming. There is also an entire people proclaiming it, existing for more than 4,000 years to testify in a body to the certainty they feel about it, from which they cannot be deflected by whatever threats and persecutions they may suffer. This is of a quite different order of importance." Do you see this gift that Koaleth has given to us today? Whether you're here or watching and listening online, this gift, this scripture from above, from above the sun, this gift from God, his revelation. Again, we sort of have different choices in life. 
We can decide to move through life without ever raising our periscope whatsoever. Everything I've got on my little submarine is all I need. I don't need help from any outside source whatsoever. I'm good. I've got the problem of death solved, apparently. That's one foolish way to live. The other foolish way to live is, oh, I'll just bring everybody on board my submarine. I'm not going to scope out anything. Anything that says it's true and wise and wisdom and knowledge, I'm just going to bring it in my head, and I'm going to adapt myself on the basis of everything I've ever brought in to my life. No, no, no. The scriptures alone are this remarkable gift that if you look at them carefully, you cannot but help and bring them in and marry yourself to them. This is what Coaleth was giving to us. This is what Pascal is pointing to us, pointing us to. In fact, 1 Peter goes on to tell us more about the motives of Coaleth. Peter tells us that Coaleth, when he was writing, was not serving himself, but you, the church of Christ, in these things being proclaimed to you today in real time, as it were. The Holy Spirit has been sent from heaven, Peter goes on to say, today, in this very moment when you are hearing this word. This word about something so glorious, Peter says, that even the angels long to look into it. Even the angels wish they had a magic periscope. You've been given this, this day. What will you do about that? What will you do about that? What will you do? Who knows? Coaleth asks over and over and over again in this, in this chapter. Who knows? Who knows? He's asked these questions. What are the answers to these questions? Apparently nobody knows. He is posing these sorts of questions, pointing to Christ by using this method. And I've used this before, so this simple little riddle. What is the Spartan spice that makes every food taste delicious? Hunger. <laughs> Hunger. <laughs> Koalath poses all these questions that are like a lump of coal. We all just die, he says. There doesn't seem to be any meaning in life. Who knows? To make us hungry. To make us hungry for Christ himself, the one who does know and does answer. So as we move through this passage, there's at least these five questions that the passage poses that we want to talk about this morning. Here's the first one, verses 1 through 5. Who knows how to enjoy life? It's a dilemma. Who knows how to enjoy life? The dilemma, as he looks around, he says, I see people who have all these opportunities for enjoyment and pleasure, but they never take those opportunities. They never get a chance. And in fact, those opportunities get stolen from them. What a grievous evil, what a, what a heavy load it lies on mankind for all these possibilities for enjoyment to be just out of reach. This dilemma of life under the sun. Verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. How do you enjoy life when maybe you do get one enjoyable meal, but then you get hungry again? 
How do you really enjoy life? Verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. All right, I've got this one thing, but look at all these other things. Never satisfied with the one thing, always looking at everything else. How do you enjoy life? How does a person, who knows, who knows how to enjoy life? What Koaleth is proposing, of course, is this. Could it be that God himself will enter into this world and take on our flesh and actually live this life, this life that we are living, to show us? Could it be that God himself will enter into this world, live this life, and show us what it looks like to enjoy life? Thus, for those who are following Christ, you'll follow in this way of enjoyment in this life. Now notice, we Christians were called disciples. And so we use the phrase followers of Christ. This is not, this way of enjoyment is not going to come to those that merely observe Christ, acknowledge the historical reality. I read the gospel accounts, I think it's all true. Isn't this interesting? I'll wear a cross around my neck. I'll even say I'm a Christian. I'll even use my Christianity as a form of uh, privilege in this world. I'm observing Christ. I'm acknowledging that he's true. No, no. The disciple follows Christ. You'll never learn this way of enjoying this life unless you're following Christ, following in his pattern in his path. And what is his pattern? When you're following Christ, you learn how it is to live this life, how to enjoy this life. And the pattern is found in many places, but let's say one place in particular, Philippians 3, verse 10, where Paul says, I long to know him, Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the pattern. This is how Christ shows us the answer for how to enjoy life, that you move with Christ into your world, following him and experiencing innumerable resurrection joys and pleasures, and also the privilege of sharing with him in the crucifixion sufferings of entering into low places and hard places. And that is how to live this life and enjoy this life, find value and meaning and purpose in this life. We reflect together as pastors every Tuesday morning in our prayer time on a particular text, and we've reflected on the Matthew 19 text that Josh read for us was our New Testament reading today. This text about Christ saying um, it's impossible for, for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And, and Peter says, we've, we've left everything to follow you. What will we receive? And Christ says, the one that has left everything to follow me will receive 
many, manifold and eternal life. And as we were discussing that text, um, just a couple, the most recent meeting that I was at, um, Preston in particular, but some others as well, were pointing out how we get ourselves into this great dilemma of angst and anxiety and depression in this life if we are expecting that we're gonna receive more in this life than Christ himself has promised. So I'm gonna make up a song and the key chorus, I think this will catch on, is gonna be, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. Did you guys know this song? Or am I so old that no one knows this song? Okay. I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. <laughs> Trite little, funny, beautiful little song. We were reflecting on Matthew 19, and of course we're pastors, so we're using this seminary phrase, over-realized eschatology, under-realized eschatology. It's a phrase that means expecting either too little or too much of what Christ is doing for us right now. And the phrase we all realize is, when we expect more of this life than Christ himself has promised, we get ourselves into all sorts of a mess. And it just came to mind, the wonder and peace that I was experiencing emanating from my father and my mother as he knew he was dying. He's 80, he was 83 years old when he passed away, and he knew what the scriptures say. It's, it's not, a, it's not a, a cut and paste for every, but as a general truth, the scriptures talk about it in Psalm 90, 70 are a man's years, 80 if he has the strength, and my father knew he'd been given this wonderful life. And as he knew that his life was ending, he had no fear. He had nothing even approaching in the head fake of the direction of like resentment or bitterness. He had been given more than he deserved. He knew it. He knew that he was walking with Christ. Who knows how to enjoy life? Christ comes for us. A second big question Koaleth poses, who knows whether we all go to the same place? Verses 3 through 6, he talks about the one that if, theoretically if a person could live thousands and thousands of years, many, many years, and verse 6, even though he should live a thousand years twice over, and then compared to a stillborn child who didn't even get to live outside of the womb for even a day, he says, don't they all go to the same place? This one is actually not a rhetorical question. Who knows whether everyone goes to the same place? It's plain. Everyone dies. Spoiler alert. Everyone dies eventually. So, what do we do about that? We can stay in our little submarine and not care or acknowledge that that's the case, that that's coming. Or we can raise the periscope and just look at everything and everything and just bring in all these theories about what's going to happen after I die. And I just believe this about it. And I believe that about it. And I believe, in fact, I believe so many things I don't believe anything. Or you can look at what Christ came to do in this world and what 1 Corinthians 15 says, everyone dies. Everyone dies. But then, 
For those in Christ, something else happens immediately. I can't stop very well. Quicker than the snap of a finger. Immediately, something else happens. For those following Christ in his resurrection, Sometimes I think that this amazing 1 Corinthians 15 text, which is used at every, every funeral memorial service I've ever been a part of, ought to be used every single week at every single worship service of the Christian church. <laughs> Let me just read how it culminates. 1 Corinthians 15. Everyone dies, brothers and sisters. If you're tuning in, spoiler alert, everyone dies. But here's what Christ came to do. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's referring there to those that are still alive, actually, when Christ comes back and the snap of the finger happens right in that moment. He says, we shall not all fall asleep, but all of us will fall asleep. All of us will die apart from that special group. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. My dad was not a trumpet player, but his eyes were always twinkling, so sorry about that. <laughs> For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, spoiler alert, we are all carrying around and living with and moving through this life with perishable bodies, must put on the imperishable. This mortal body, spoiler alert, you have a mortal body, must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? Yes, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But we've confessed our sins, haven't we, brothers and sisters? A worship service has us do that. And so thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who knows whether we all go to the same place, Koaleth asks, and Christ answers. A third question, who knows whether there is any advantage to wisdom? Verses 8 and 11 raise this question. Doesn't it seem sometimes like there's no advantage to wisdom? Doesn't it seem like verse 11 says that it's just, wisdom is just more and more words, more and more books to read, it's all vanity? Doesn't it seem like verse 8 says that there's really no advantage to being wise? And even if a poor man learns how to conduct himself well in this world, horrible things can still happen to him. Doesn't it seem like there's no advantage to wisdom? It does seem that way. That's why Koaleth is making us hunger. Is that really how life is? That there's no advantage to wisdom? It sure seems like it. But you see, Christ comes. And Christ is called, in 1 Corinthians, our wisdom. He's not given an infinite number of titles in the scriptures. When he's given a particular title, 
we rejoice. And he's called our wisdom. So Christ comes and gives us wisdom. And then we become the sort of people that say, you know what, I'm really not okay living here alone on my submarine. I need more wisdom. I'm going to raise the periscope. But I'm not just going to receive anything that's out there. I'm going to look for something true and beautiful. I'm going to let you, Christ, bring wisdom into my life, into my heart. I learned after my father passed, because I, he had written most of his obituary for his Naval Academy um, magazine, more details than I had known. I, I knew we had moved, that he had one job in the D.C. area, and then he got another job at the Pentagon, and that kept my life stable, same school, same friends. That's kind of all I really cared about. I learned after he passed what he was actually doing with that Pentagon job. Uh, you, you, anybody remembering the Cold War would probably remember the, 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 really the most successful submarine platform in history that many have said is what brought about the end of the Cold War. Um, that the, the Soviet Union just couldn't compete was the Los Angeles-class fast attack submarines. Turns out my father was the one appointed by the Chief of Naval Operations to oversee getting the, the Los Angeles attack submarines into the fleet to oversee bringing these weapons of war, where one Los Angeles-class fast attack submarine has more firepower than all the firepower used in the history of warfare, of human history, combined, and one submarine with all its nuclear weapons has more firepower than all of that. So you can imagine the need to go deep into wisdom to grow in wisdom, to learn about, for example, the just and unjust uses of force and power, to dive deep into just war theory. In my own little experience with that, when we were in the Persian Gulf, our ship saw an Iranian ship committing an act of war by putting mines, uh, destructive mines into international waters intended to kill innocent people. So they were combatants. And so we sent out helicopters to sink their ship. That's what you do with combatants who are committing acts of war. But as soon as their ship was sinking and their sailors were overboard and in the Persian Gulf, now they're non-combatants. So we sent out small boats and rescued them, and brought them on board our ship, and gave them the best medical care in the world. The distinction between combatants and non-combatants is by growing in wisdom, understanding just war theory, for example. Now, the reason why Koaleth is posing this question in such a cynical way is that it is true that making use of wisdom in this world is no guarantee that it's going to make your life better. It may, in fact, bring more persecution to you and make your life worse if you use wisdom in this world. But you see, the Scriptures promise, and Christ himself promises, that growing in wisdom definitely makes the lives of those around you better. Who knows whether there's any advantage to wisdom Christ comes, Christ who is our wisdom, and he assures us there is great advantage to wisdom, not necessarily for you in this life, 
but for others in this life and for you with your eternal reward. A fourth question, and here's where in the, if you got here early enough to read the meditation quote from Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, he's raising his question in that quote, who knows what man even is? This is the question that Koaleth poses. Who knows what man even is? Verse 10, he answers it there, it is known what man is. He asks it again in verse 12, what good is it for man to even live? Who can, does man even know what's going to come after him under the sun? What is the nature of man? Who knows what man even is? Nietzsche's quote was from his own perspective, where he had committed himself, as it were, to living on his submarine and not taking in any outside wisdom from above the sun. He certainly was open to wisdom on, on the horizontal level, learning all sorts of things that this world had to offer, but he ruled as out of bounds anything supernatural, any possibility that there was a God above the sun who would come into space and time and change everything. So he, when, once you rule that out, then Nietzsche's quote makes perfect sense, that we can't know anything. We can't even know who we are as human beings. But Koaleth won't leave us stuck like that. He says, guess what? We are a mystery to ourselves. There's no question about that. But there are some things that are plain. Verse 10 is plain. It is known that we are not able to dispute with one stronger than us, that there are powers more powerful than me. Easily half of you in this room could wrestle me to the ground. And that's just a simple, silly little wrestling match. Any human that doesn't acknowledge that there are powers greater than them is a fool. So everyone acknowledges that, that man is limited and finite and contingent and dependent. Everyone acknowledges that. But, it, but the writer of, of Ecclesiastes goes further, and we'll see this in the, in the next chapter, but I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler. Here it is, the end of chapter 7. See, this alone I have found. As I look around with my periscope, I found that God made man upright but we have sought out many schemes. There it is, the first two chapters of the three chapters of humanity that we human beings, who knows this? Nietzsche won't acknowledge these things because this comes from above and is revealed to us. But anyone looking at the scriptures and trusting them in faith realizes chapter one is we were created in glory, upright, but we've fallen and have turned to many schemes, turned in on ourselves. But then Koaleth is making us hungry for that third chapter, which is God is coming to redeem us and restore us and renew us in all things, restoring us even beyond our original glory to a state far more perfect and eternal. Who knows what man even is? Ah, Christ comes and tells us who we are. And of course, he reminds us in Luke chapter 12 about the one that's stronger than us. You remember this passage where he says, actually, don't be afraid of the one that can kill your body. Like I said, half of you could wrestle me to the ground and then end my life, I suppose. Don't be afraid of the one that can 
end your life, Christ says, be afraid of the one that can end your life and end your soul, sending it to hell. In other words, Christ is saying the only thing that Coalesce says at the end of the book, the whole point of it all, fear God. Fear God. Christ is stronger than us, brothers and sisters. In all his resurrected glory, he is most certainly stronger than us. The only reason he didn't use all the power that he had to quell the raging storm during his incarnation, to drive demons out during his incarnation against us and against his enemies was mercy. It wasn't that he didn't have the power. Remember, he said, I could call down from heaven angels with swords and eliminate all. Christ is stronger than us. Koaleth is telling us here, there is one coming and he's going to be stronger than you. Ah, just, just kiss him and you're friends forever. <laughs> Tell him you need him. Tell him you need his forgiveness and his grace and you're friends forever. You're his brother, you're his sister. You're his disciple. Who knows what man even is? Christ does. And Christ gives that true identity to you and to me. And then finally, this whole chapter is about this one question that summed up in verse 12. Who knows what is even good for man while he lives? This is really the, the, the overarching question of the whole book of Ecclesiastes. It starts out chapter 1, verse 3. What are we even laboring for? What is life for? Who knows what a, what a life well-lived even looks like? This is the question he's posing. Now, how do we answer that? Hopefully the whole sermon to this point, hopefully the whole service to this point, hopefully every worship service that you've ever attended or will ever attend helps you answer that core question. What is a life well-lived? But if not, let me summarize it one way by answering that question from this passage. A life well-lived begins by not staying stuck in your submarine, but raising the periscope, looking around, just acknowledging that you live under the sun. Just, just acknowledge reality. That's step one. Like, you're not going to live forever. You're limited, you're finite, you're contingent, you're dependent. Step number one is just raise the periscope. Look around. Step number two then is, of course, open your heart and your mind. As my Uncle Walt did with Aunt Betsy, the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen, welcoming her into his life. <laughs> open your heart and your mind to Christ himself. Christ himself. Fear God. Be reconciled to God through Christ. Become a beloved child of God. Receive his love. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his friendship. And then thirdly, now you get to walk through the rest of your life, whether it's 70 years, 80 years, shorter than that, longer than that. Now you get to walk through the rest of your life with Christ as his disciple and his friend. This Christ walks with you both into the resurrection joys and enjoyments he has for you and into the sufferings and sorrows that he has for you to take his shape. He walks with you, as Psalm 23 says, like a good shepherd, into both the green pastures he has for you, the fellowship where you're surrounded by others, your cup overflows with anointing, and into those valleys of the shadow of death. Christ is with you. He goes before you. He's with you. Love and mercy follow you. He's behind you. That's how 
to live a life. <laughs> That's how to live a life. Don't stay stuck in your submarine. Acknowledge you need help from above. Don't just receive any sort of help. Receive Christ himself and then walk with Christ into both his resurrection joys and his crucifixion sorrows. Who knows? Who knows? Koaleth used, used his periscope to raise those questions so that we could receive the answers by faith. Christ comes near to us. Receive him by faith. Let's pray. Lord, you are the great hope of all the world. Every single song we have sung in this worship service to this point was about this eternal hope that's ours, not just for this present life, but for the life of the world to come and the hope you give us in the here and the now. Just as you entered into space and in time to take on our flesh, we know that by your spirit, you are with us now in space and in time. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you pour out upon all those that know and trust in your Son, Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.